kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 30. Acts 9, verses 19 through 30. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. This section concludes the introduction to Saul of Tarsus, who will in time become one of the most important personalities in the book of Acts and consequently in Christian history. Thus far, we have seen him undergo a remarkable, almost unbelievable transformation. His conversion was so unlikely and had so much working against it that it has become one of the favorite and most effective apologetic arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many great thinkers have agreed that apart from the real resurrected Christ actually appearing to Saul, there's no accounting for his becoming a Christian, and not merely a Christian, but a model Christian in many respects. We'll have more to say on this in just a moment. In Acts 9, verses 19 through 30, we discover what happened after his conversion, and there are some significant details that, for whatever reason, Luke excludes from his record. We learn them from the testimony of Saul himself elsewhere, but although Luke certainly had access to the information, he opted not to include it in this account. I have tried to consider why that might have been, but at the present I cannot think of a possible reason nor have I encountered any impressive suggestions so far. Thus I cannot see how it will hurt our study, but rather I think it will greatly help it to include that information as it is appropriate in our investigation of these verses. Verse 19. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. What must these days have been like? It is true that he would have had Ananias to vouch for him, and Ananias had seen a vision of the Lord, explaining how he had appeared to Saul and what his intentions were for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit and serve as a minister of the gospel. He had found Saul fasting and praying. 
He had healed him of his blindness, and he had baptized him into Christ, so that all of his sins, his blasphemies, his persecutions, his ignorant oppositions to the purposes of God, could be washed away. Ananias had been skeptical, but the instruction and reassurance of the Lord caused that noble son of Abraham in both the flesh and in the spirit to welcome the enemy of his friends into the family of God. And no doubt he led him to the homes and the assemblies of other Christians in Damascus, and he said, This is our brother Saul. The Lord Jesus has redeemed him. If there was any hesitance or bitterness in the hearts of the Damascus brethren, Luke fails to mention it. If Ananias is a reliable specimen, then we can see the kingdom of God was taking strong root there, and a whole community of men and women, like Stephen, like Jesus, were being formed who could forgive and love the one who killed and hated them. What a further impact on Saul that must have had. He had seen Christ on the road to Damascus, and now he continued to see him in the hearts and lives of the followers of Christ in the city. Verse 20, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. All of these events, from the appearance of Jesus to the pardon of Saul's sins to the loving embrace of the brethren, served to turn the tide of his extraordinary passions and abilities to be fully focused on the promotion of the kingdom of heaven. He went into the synagogues, to which he had formerly intended to go with letters from the Sanhedrin, but now he has a proclamation from heaven. Immediately he preached the Christ, that he is the Son of God. I do not think that we should read too much theology into this statement. Saul likely did not yet realize the divine nature of Jesus or the wonderful truths about God that Christ revealed, which later believers would describe with the term the Trinity. Saul is not yet the polished and brilliant Christian theologian who will write Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. At this time, he probably understands very little, if anything, of the wonderful truths of justification by faith that he will eventually articulate with such power and clarity. Now, he knows that Jesus is the Christ. The statement that he is the Son of God likely means the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God, which, although a term that takes on richer meaning in the full light of gospel revelation, was a well-established way for Jews to talk about the Messiah. See John chapter 1, verse 49, for example. Verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who came to destroy those who call on this name? He destroyed those in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. These were not Christians saying this, but the Jews who had possibly invited Saul to come to town for that very purpose that they mentioned to bring an end to the Christian movement. They had heard how effectively he accomplished that in Jerusalem and in other cities, but now here he is talking like they talk, claiming to be one of them. I cannot imagine how the Jews in Damascus might have tried to rationalize what was going on. It's possible that they dismissed him as having had some kind of mental break or having been pushed off balance by a mirage or a dream that he didn't know how to explain. 
But, says verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength. His preaching became more and more compelling and powerful every day, and more difficult to dismiss as he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. The unbelievers were perplexed and baffled, meaning that they were bested in argument and made to look foolish. Reese says that the term can carry the idea of stirring up a tumult. So Saul was doing in the synagogue of Damascus just exactly what Stephen had been doing in the synagogue of the freedmen. And Luke says that he was proving that this Jesus is the Christ. The Christian faith can be proven reasonably. It is not simply a collection of esoteric, mystical insights that may or may not strike a chord with certain personalities. Saul himself had been converted. Once again, calling on Arthur Knox's definition of the term, his soul had been reoriented by the deliberate turning from an earlier form of piety to another, a turning which implied a consciousness that a great change was involved and that the old was wrong and the new was right. Christ had been proven to him, and now he was driven to prove Christ to others. How would he go about proving that Jesus is the Christ? Well, first, he could appeal to his own experience. He had seen him and spoken with him face to face, surrounded by the light of the glory of God. What could the Jews have done with that claim? They might have accused him of being a liar or having been deceived himself. However, he could call the others who were traveling with him to testify, although they did not understood, uh, understand rather the words of Jesus. They had been knocked to the ground. They had seen the light. They had heard at least the sound of the voice. And there were still more Jews in Damascus, like Judas of Straight Street, who could testify that he had indeed been blinded, and there had been some strange, scabby, scaly growth over his eyes until one of the Christians came in and laid hands on him. That kind of evidence made it clear that he was not simply deceived. He was not a deceiver, could be seen, by the great suffering that this change of allegiance was sure to bring to him. Saul, above all people, knew that Christians were hated by some very powerful and determined forces in this world, why would he decide to become one? What man makes up a lie to bring greater hurt and hatred on himself? But he would have had more than simply his experience to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He would have had the tremendous confluence of Old Testament Scripture with the life and ministry of Jesus, including the manner of his death and the circumstances under which the church was then growing and functioning at that very moment. Saul was an expert in the Jewish scripture, and as he spent time listening to and learning from the Christian teachers about the details of the life of Christ, he would surely have been able to immediately piece together some complex and extremely compelling presentations from all the scriptures that might come as close to matching the Emmaus Road discourse as any uninspired sermon ever did. The witness of the apostles and early Christians and the prophecies of the Old Testament constitute proofs of the Messiahship of Jesus. They proved it to the Jews of the first century, and they could prove it to us if we will only hear them. On that note, 
I called Saul's sermon here uninspired, and I believe at this point there's no reason to suppose that he has received the helper and formally begun his ministry as an apostle. In fact, there are good reasons to believe that he has not. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, the apostle Peter expressed the qualifications for an apostle. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Thus, there were two qualifications. First, a man must have accompanied Jesus and learned from him during his earthly ministry. And second, he must have seen the risen Lord. At this point, Saul has already seen the risen Lord, but of course he did not follow Jesus or learn from him during his earthly ministry. How could that deficiency be remedied? In his writings, Saul makes a very strong point that he did not learn the facts of the gospel and the doctrines of Christ from any other human being. Ananias did not teach him, the Damascus Christians did not teach him, and the apostles did not teach him. Listen to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul says that he went to Arabia and there received the revelation of Jesus Christ, by which he learned the things that he went on to preach throughout the world. In passages like 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul talks about events in the life of Jesus that he did not personally witness, or facts and propositions of the gospel, some of them constituting the heavenly mysteries of the gospel, like the atoning work of Christ's death. And he says, I received, first of all, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. Well, when did he receive these things? During the three-year period that he went to Arabia. And it was likely at the end of this period that Jesus gave him the Holy Spirit as the helper to remind him of everything that he said to him and to guide him into all truth. And here is where he would have formally begun his apostolic ministry. This meant that Paul was fully qualified to be an apostle and was not deficient. He was not behind any other apostle in any respect. It is impossible to say with certainty where Paul was when he says he went to Arabia. That term had a very broad geographical meaning in the ancient world. Some scholars think he was just outside of Damascus. Some think he was northeast of the Dead Sea. Some think he was at Mount Sinai. However, there's simply no way to be certain. Perhaps the more challenging question 
is, when did this happen? We know that afterward he returned to Damascus, so he was converted, he went to Damascus and immediately preached Christ in the synagogues, then he went to Arabia for three years, and then he returned to Damascus. Thus, I suggest that this three-year period is included in Luke's opening comment in verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the many days of Acts 9.23 is the three years of Galatians chapter 1. In addition to giving him equal time to receive instruction from Christ to the other apostles— There are other reasonable suggestions for this three-year period before Saul began his apostolic work. This was three years for the wounded church to heal from his persecution, and three years for the wounded persecutor to come to terms with what he had done, that Jesus had now forgiven him. Solomon said, There is a time to heal, and God would have us all take that time and give that time to others. Most scholars suppose that he was also preaching in Arabia. Perhaps he didn't do much preaching at first, but if he received the helper and the commission at the end of the three years, the cities of Arabia would have been a reasonable place for him to begin his new work. This makes sense because it would account for how the king of the region, Eratos, would soon take notice of Saul and become agitated enough with him to get in league with his Jewish enemies to put him to death. We know that this happened because while Luke omits it, Saul mentions it in 2 Corinthians 11.32. Luke says the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Saul in 2 Corinthians informs it was not the Jews alone, but Eratus and the governor of Damascus working with them. This has led some scholars to suppose that Paul had caused an uproar in some of the Arabian cities, and he had to flee back to Damascus, but now he was stronger than ever before as a preacher, and his several enemies banded together to put an end to him. As Jesus had previously announced to Ananias, Saul was going to suffer many things for Christ's name. Verse 24, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall. In 2 Corinthians, Saul says it was through a window, so it might have been a house built into the wall of the city, and they put him in a large basket. The basket may have been for food or for garbage, but they lowered him down by a rope, and they allowed him to slip past the soldiers and spies and steal away into the night. Now it was time for Saul to meet the rest of the church. So Luke continues in verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, McGarvey's right to note that Luke, in the typical style of Bible writers, leaves out what must have been a flood of emotions in Saul's mind. As he retraced his steps on the Damascus Road and came back by the place where Jesus first appeared to him, then he would come near the city and see over yonder Golgotha or perhaps some recent crucifixion victims were hanging at that very time. And then the place where he had stood and held the coats while Stephen was killed. Ahead, he would see the great temple looming over the holy city, but it all looked so different to him now. It meant something so different than it ever had before. Luke continues that he tried to join the disciples 
That is, he tried to become a member of the community of believers in Jerusalem. As we've already noted, there were likely thousands of congregations throughout the city and its outlying districts, but everywhere he went, he found followers of Jesus, and they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. There are many points we could make about this, many things we could say, but I want to make just one point. All of the wonderful things that had happened in the life of Saul over the last three years were unknown to the believers in Jerusalem, even, as we'll see in a moment, the apostles themselves. This is amazing, and it cannot be explained away by simply noting that they lived before high-speed communication, even if the saints in Damascus had not been able to get word to Jerusalem, and we wonder how that would have been the case for three years. Jesus could have informed the apostles supernaturally, but he did not. God is under no obligation to inform us of what he is doing in the lives of other people throughout the world. Sometimes we judge the state of the kingdom by our own work, as though it is only our work that exists, and our own congregation and our community of believers as though that's all there is on the earth. The truth is, we have no idea what God is accomplishing in this world, and one day, we might be shocked to discover that he has been raising up a person like Saul to totally transform the future, and we were simply uninformed and uninvolved. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. We do not know why Barnabas was willing to intervene on Saul's behalf. Did he have the gift of discerning spirits or a word of knowledge or wisdom? that showed him what had happened? Or was it simply his encouraging and consoling character that had endeared him to the apostles early on? Some people have supposed, because of where the two men grew up, that they might have known each other earlier in life. And that certainly is possible, but we simply cannot know for sure. Yet it is worth pausing to reflect how important a work is the work of advocacy within the church. The apostle John comforted all Christians with the reminder that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus comes alongside to speak on our behalf for us. Similarly, we must be willing to do the same for one another. By standing up for Saul, Barnabas launched the most powerful ministry in the history of the world and forged a friendship with Saul that enabled them to labor together in the gospel in marvelous ways. Sometimes the strong bonds of love and fraternity that should exist in the church require for their creation someone to step up and step out on behalf of another. Luke continues, And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas shared this with the apostles, meaning that Saul had first explained it to him. And again, we don't know precisely why he believed when no one else did, but he did believe and he supported the testimony. Again, we learn some important matters here from Saul's comments in Galatians. At this point, he only met Peter and James the elder, the Lord's brother. 
All of the other apostles seem to have been away, perhaps visiting churches like Peter and John had done in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And Paul spent 15 days getting acquainted with Peter and James. Getting acquainted is how the New American Standard Version translates the phrase in Galatians 1.18, and it well captures the idea. Saul was not learning the faith from them. He had already learned that from Jesus. He was simply becoming familiar with them as his beloved brethren and co-workers in Christ. Verse 28, So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. That expression was used in Acts 1.21 to describe being part of the company of disciples, and it means the same thing here. Because of Barnabas's intercession, Saul was fully received into the fellowship of believers, and he was numbered among the apostles according to the will of Jesus. Verses 29 through 30. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. This is a striking conclusion. Saul seems to go right to his old synagogue, the one in which he and some other friends had debated Stephen and ultimately worked out his murder. Now he is here resuming Stephen's work, and the same reaction is rising up against him. The brethren, we suppose this includes the apostles and others, were loath to see history repeated in the loss of another one of Christ's great servants, so they either escorted him or supported him or both to make the journey back to his home city of Tarsus. As much more to say, but with Luke's narrative, we'll leave him here for now. Many years ago, when I was a young boy, I heard a preacher read a poem called The Bird with the Broken Pinion. The premise of that poem is that a bird who breaks its wing may live and may even fly, but it will never fly as high again. The lesson was that if you make mistakes, they may permanently cripple you from being of any great value or good other than being a warning to those who come after you. I've come to reject that poem as anti-Christian. Saul of Tarsus is a powerful testimony against it. Certainly we should protect our influence, and our actions can damage or destroy it with certain people and can have serious impacts on our lives. However, the lesson of the Christian gospel is this. Even a great sinner can become a great servant because we have such a great Savior. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com From all the dark places of earth's heathen races Oh, see how the thick shadows fly the voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. 
With praising and singing and jubilant ringing their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.